tonight is going to be a special night. Tonight uh, we're going to continue uh, in, a, in our series in Psalms that we're going to be in the entire quarter. But tonight, Psalms meet Easter. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 2. And last week we talked about the fact that Psalms are a collection of prayers. It's an ancient prayer book that God has given us. And in the midst of this ancient prayer book that God has given us, there are two psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They're almost like a doorway into this prayer book. Last week we talked about Psalm 1, and we saw that Psalm 1 paints a marvelous picture of the kind of a life that God blesses. A kind of a life that is hungry for God. Tonight, we're going to see... Psalms broaden the spectrum and give us a much broader picture. Tonight, Psalms are going to paint a picture of what kind of world we live in as God places those that he blesses in the midst of this world. And in it, we're going to wrestle with that question, is it really all about me? And here are some of the words, wise words from John Piper. He says this, it horribly skews the meaning of the cross, when contemporary prophets of self-esteem say that the cross is the witness to my infinite worth, since God was willing to pay such a high price to get me. The biblical perspective is that the cross is a witness to the infinite worth of God's glory and is a witness to the immensity of the sin of my pride. And it is with these words ringing in our ears that we turn to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven's laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them with his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight, and Lord, as we embark on this journey, Uh, Through Psalm 2, Lord, we ask that uh, you would open our eyes to the reality to which this psalm is pointing. There are many parts in this psalm that on the first read don't really make sense. In some ways they scandalize you and they affront us and they sound harsh. And yet, Lord, in the midst of these ancient words, would you let us hear your heart? And would you draw us? to your heart. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it possible to put things on this screen too? 
because I can't see anything up there. All right. Okay. Well, I don't know where you're coming from, but um, I've had a pretty long day. My day began around 5.15. And that's what happens when you have little kids, right? Some, some people who are on staff and have little kids, you can relate to that reality. But um, <clears throat> our three-year-old Greta had a pretty rough night. I mean, she's one of those little kids that, I mean, she's full of life. All the ladies in our household, they're full of zest, they're daring, they're gregarious, uh, they try lots of new things, and they dive into life to the fullest. Uh, Greta recently started to go to preschool, and a part of the, being a part of the Christian preschool, they'll learn lots of songs. Well, she inherited musical skills from her father, which amount to nothing. Uh, so, which means that every song she hears, she can't even remember the whole thing. She just remembers parts of them, but then she turns them into these cheerleading chants. <laughs> so recently, we're at Caribou Coffee Shop. I'm taking her and her five-year-old brother and walk in, and I get him a cookie. And we're sitting down, and she's so excited to have a cookie, she starts chanting, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ! And the entire coffee shop just turns and kind of stares at us. So last night she was having a nightmare and she decides that the safest place is her parents' bed. So at about, you know, a little bit after four o'clock, I think she kind of a saunters in and she kind of a snuggles in between me and Laura. And, you know, it's one of those moments where she's having a comfort time and my sleep is turning into a nightmare by now. Because you see, I'm in one of those deep sleep moments where, you know, everything becomes colorful and bright. And in my dream, I'm participating in some kind of athletic activity that in some ways resembles basketball, but also involves checkers. So at this point, like our team is down. I mean, our checker pieces are almost gone and we're behind in the score. And in my dream, I'm going up for a layup with all my checkers in hand. And suddenly this guy just hits me below the waist and I rudely wake up and I realize it wasn't the guy hitting me below the waist. It was my daughter's little karate chop move with her foot that wakes me up. So with a stroke of genius, I just take her and turn her around. So her feet are facing you know, my head and I go back to sleep. I go back to the game and... By now, I, I don't even know if with the time moved forward or backward, it seems like things are a little bit okay, our team is doing all right, our checker pieces are kind of intact, and I'm going for another layup, and the same dude now hits me in the head. <laughs> and I wake up and I realize the guy's gone. Now my, it's my daughter's second karate move that's hitting my head, and by this point I'm awake. And I just quit on that game, and I said, okay, it's time to get up and face the reality. Well, in some ways... This is what Psalm 2 is. It's like God's way of kicking us in the head and saying, wake up. This is the kind of world you live in. And the kind of world that he tells us we live in, it starts out in the first three verses. Where Psalmist says, why are the nations in uproar? And why are all these peoples and kings plotting against Yahweh and against his anointed one? And the word that he uses for the word, why are they plotting? Is the same word if you were here last week. 
In Psalm chapter 1, it's the same word haga that is used to describe a righteous person who is dwelling on, who is mulling over God's law. The word Haggai, like we talked about last week, literally means to kind of um, to whisper or to, you know, book of Isaiah describes a young lion that growls over its prey in hunger. In Psalm 1, the word describes a person who is hungry for God. In Psalm 2, the same word is used to describe the world that is hungry to pounce at God and at God's people. It's the same word that is used here to describe the kind of world you and I live in. In a way, Psalm 2 is telling us that you and I don't live in a friendly world. That if you cast your lot with Yahweh, you find yourself living in a hostile world. And friends, the reality is those of us that live in the Western world, we don't know what that really means, right? I mean, this weekend, the Easter weekend, most megachurches is going to hold these special worship sessions where all their locations are going to come together at some kind of a big stadium arena, and they're going to bring in helicopters with 10,000 Easter eggs, and they're going to shower those Easter eggs on their parishioners, and people are going to delight and enjoy the glorious gospel. Halfway across the globe, a different reality is going to emerge. In the countries like Sudan and Iraq and Afghanistan, small motley crews of people are going to wake up really early in the morning. And they're going to slowly look, make sure that nobody's finding them. And they're going to make a treacherous journey to somebody's house. And they're going to worship Jesus and they're going to cling to him against all odds. You see, friends, there are some statistics that I have for you. Statistics that tell us that 75% of religious persecution that takes place, all the liberties that are taken, they're dealing with Christians. 90% of people who are killed for their religious beliefs are followers of Jesus. In the last 20 centuries, there have been 70 million Christians that have been slaughtered for their faith. And over half of them were in the 20th century. Every year, there's 164,000 Christians being killed for their faith. And that number is going to increase to 210,000 by the year 2025. And even more astonishing than all those statistics are that there are over 200 million Christians in at least 60 countries around the globe right now. They don't have basic human rights just by the virtue of their faith in Christ. Just recently, I was reading a story of this lady in North Korea. Do you know that people in North Korea are starving? They're to the point where government cannot even provide bread for them. That North Korea is willing right now to halt their nuclear explorations in exchange for American food. But in the midst of that, her husband was taken out of the house and disappears under the disguise of the authorities. And she's left there to take care of her three kids. They were at the point of starvation. So she decides that she's going to try to escape to China. And as she's making a treacherous journey with her two teenage girls and a five-year-old son, she realizes that her five-year-old son is to the point of malnutrition, that he cannot survive the treacherous journey through the mountains So on the border, she leaves her five-year-old son with this widow that was willing to take care of him while she went to find food. And she's telling this gut-wrenching story. 
about her five-year-old son looking at her saying, Mommy, why are you leaving me here? By the time she was able to come back, the villagers told her that the widow reneged on a promise. And this little five-year-old boy was found wandering the streets of the village, singing her, his favorite song, telling himself that his mommy would never abandon him. And one of the villagers had mercy on him and gave him a little bit of rice. But he was so malnourished that he died several hours later. You see, friends, I have a five-year-old son. And I cannot imagine what it would be like if because of my faith, he will have to face the kind of reality. Friends, that's the kind of world we live in. But you and I don't feel the pain of that. You and I don't feel the weight of it because in the words of Stanley Howard, we've been put to sleep, we've been lulled to sleep in a nice, warm, fetal sack of religious pluralism here in the West. And yet the rest of the world faces this kind of a gut-wrenching reality. But it's a gut-wrenching reality caused by human sin that not only covers the nations, but goes through every individual human heart. More stunning than that story is the fact when I look deep inside my own heart, I know the evil that's marinating in there. When the book of Romans tells me that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I know that deep inside of me. You see, I know the reality in which we as Christians exist. And it's a reality that on one hand, Abraham Kuyper, one of the Dutch theologians, says this. He says, there is not a square inch in this creation over which Christ, the sovereign of all, does not cry out mine. You see, on one hand, we live in a reality in which Jesus says, it is all mine. Nothing escapes my gaze. But on the other hand, we hear the words of Karl Barth who says this, the absolute evil imposes itself upon creation in a form that we all recognize, namely sin and death. It appears in illegitimate dominion, incomprehensible and inexplicable of the one whom the scriptures call the devil. The creature is defenseless in the face of this threat. God is superior to it, but not the creature. Once given entrance, the devil performs endless ravages against which we have no other protection than God's. Wherever God is absent, wherever he is not the master, it is the other who dominates. There is no alternative. You see, friends, the scriptures tell us that behind all evil... Behind all the human atrocities, behind all sin, stands a being. Stands a being who is the ancient deceiver, who is the father of lies. The one who is called the prince of this age, who has blinded the eyes of non-believers. The one who holds the entire world in darkness. The one to whom First Peter tells us he is like the roaring lion. Looking for someone to devour. The one who according to Revelation chapter 8. Who will persist till the very end. In leading the nations in the assault against God and his kingdom. So we are in the words of Douglas Hyde. We are caught in this battle. 
that there is a battle going on all over the world in, in his words. It's a battle in the final analysis. It's a battle for the souls and minds of men and women across the world. And yet the question is, what is God going to do about that? If we're woken up to that kind of a grand reality, how is God going to handle that? And according to the psalm, notice one thing that doesn't happen. God doesn't sit there in his throne room, kind of a wringing his hands around, kind of looking at Gabriel and saying, Gabriel, what should we do? Look what they've done. What am I going to do now? How am I going to handle that? Oh my goodness, I can't control this anymore. This is out of hand. Well, no, it doesn't happen. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. He has this to say. He says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him. Then a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Psalm 2 tells us that with his word, with his mere word, your God throws the nations into derision. And the word is, I have installed my king in Zion. He's saying, whoever this king is, because right now in Psalm 2, we don't know. Whoever this king is, he is God's anointed one. The word there is Mashiach. That's where we get the word Messiah. Whoever this king is, he is the regent of Yahweh. The one to whom Yahweh refers to, you are my son. Today I have become your father. That doesn't mean that somehow God is getting an epidural and they're rushing him into a delivery room and he's having a little boy. This is not a language of showing up at the hospital with blue balloons and little it's a boy sign. This is not a language of somebody's physically creating a king. This is the language of inauguration. Today, your reign has begun. And your reign consists of you having an iron rod. And your reign consists in crushing the nations as an earthenware. And that language just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right that God's king, whoever he is, will be that destructive. To us, that sounds scandalizing because we don't understand this language. Because it's written to people in the antiquity who understood exactly what he's talking about. The iron rod is a sign of king's power. It's a sign of his authority. See, in Egypt, and all over the ancient world, but specifically we have texts from Egypt that tell us that when the pharaoh came to power... You see, this moment of transition from one king to another, it was a very turbulent time politically. Because you didn't know if this was going to be a powerful king or not. And the points of transition were times where inferior nations would rebel against the great king. And when a great pharaoh, new pharaoh, would come to power, symbolically he would take earthen vessels that would have the names of surrounding nations written on it, and he would smash them. As a sign of his authority over them. Same thing in Mesopotamian texts. When we are told that their king reigns and he is powerful. They use the same language. They say that the king has crushed the nations like an earthenware. 
In essence, this is a picture of the king who is coming to power. That he's going to have the worldwide domain. And isn't that just interesting? That when Jesus steps on the scene, the first thing that takes place when he emerges out of the waters of baptism is that we hear God's voice that says, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then later on we hear not just the echoes of Psalm 2, but direct references to. For example, in Acts 13, verses, in Acts 13, when Paul is preaching and he's presenting what happened during the point of resurrection, he puts the resurrection as a reference to Psalm 2. And he says this in verse 32. And we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In essence, as followers of Jesus, we understand that what Psalm 2 is talking about is about you and my Savior. What Psalm 2 is really talking about is saying the world has gone amok. The world is a hostile place. How is God going to handle the human mess? It's Easter. The cross becomes the bloody throne. The cross becomes that moment when Jesus' reign begins. This is how N.T. Wright puts it. He says this. He says, we could cope. The world could cope with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside the disciples' minds and hearts. The world cannot cope with the Jesus who comes out of the tomb, who inaugurates God's new creation right in the middle of the old one. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are now invited to belong to it. Easter is God's kick to you on my head that says, wake up. The kingdom of God has broken into the flow of humanity and something new and powerful here that changes the dynamic of the human existence now and forever. You see, I vividly remember when Jacqueline, our firstborn, was little. I mean, she's 13 now. She's in the audience. She loves real life. I I remember when she was little. I think she was like three years old or something. And uh, one day, it was was a weekend, and I decided I was going to give Laura a break. So I take her to the park. And I brought one of the guys from a Bible study with me. And it's one of those, it's her favorite park. I mean, she loves it. You know, like, like I said, our girls are pretty daring. So they had a pretty decent-sized slide that she loved. And she's pretty independent, so she would, you know, crawl up and come down the slide, grow back up, come down the slide. So, you know, she didn't need much supervision. So I'm sitting there having a conversation with Jared, and suddenly I hear she's crying. I walk over there, and I realize that there's a different reality that I'm facing now. You see, there's a little five-year-old... Tweed, little boy, 
standing at the top of the slide saying, this is my slide. And Jacqueline is like standing there weeping. Now, this is his slide. And immediately it's kind of like there's a rush of blood in my head. I'm looking at him. I'm looking at her. And all the promises that I've made to her that nobody will ever hurt her suddenly are becoming a reality. So immediately I calm down. I tell Jared to go stand at the bottom of the slide. I grab her hand and we slowly but gently walk to the top of the slide. And guess what happens when a 300-pound man (laughs) gets to the top of the slide? Five-year-old boys disappear. (laughs) And I took Jacqueline. I put her on top of the slide. Kind of gently nudged her. And then as she's sliding down, I kind of ran around the slide and kind of waved at her until Jared picked her up at the end. And I said, honey, you just learned a lesson. You see, I'm going to push you down the slide of life, and I'm going to run around you till one day you fall in the arms of a godly man. And then that's his job to take care of you. But until that point, I'll be there. I'll be there. And I think Easter tells us the same thing. Easter is God's way of telling you and I, I control all the slides of the world. That no matter what kind of a danger you face, it's mine. I'm going to push you down the slide of life. And I'm going to run around you and be with you. And at the end, I'm going to catch you. So in the final analysis, is it about me? Yes and no. Yes, it is about me because I am helplessly screwed up. And apart from God's costly enterprise of installing his king in Zion. Because you see, this, even though God does it effortlessly, that with a mere word, he can send the nations in uproar. Even though with his just one word, he can dismiss all the tyrants of the universe. He has a deep price to pay. Installing his king in Zion costs him the crucifixion. So how do we respond to that? How would God want us to respond to that reality right now? Where we sit. Well, the rest of the psalm tells us. Picking up in verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. See, Psalm 1 begins with telling us who is really blessed. And he tells us that those that are hungry for God are blessed. Psalm 2 ends with the same idea. Who is blessed at the end? Those that take refuge in him. He uses a military term. Hasa really means an army that is in full retreat and tries to find a high ground in order to escape. And God says, you are in the middle of the battleground. There is a fight going on, bloody operation to draw you away from me. 
The only thing you can do in this battle is to cling to me and find your refuge in me. How do you do that? Psalmist answer is really simple. He puts all the nations, all the kings on alert. He says, my king has come to power. So how do you respond to him? He says, kiss the son. Kiss him. And this is not, he's not talking about this lovey-dovey version of Christianity that we have today. You see, Jesus is not this dude that you go on romantic rendezvous to your favorite coffee shop. You know, Jesus is not the bro that you play Settlers of Catan with. Let me put a picture for you of what he means when he says, kiss the sun. Here it is. The one standing is the Assyrian king Shalmaneser. The one kissing his feet is King Jehu, a Jewish king. Jehu knows politically what it means to bend his knees before the powerful king. Jehu knows what it means to be in the presence of greatness. Jehu knows what it means to be in awe and in reverence in the presence of the mighty king. It's the French novelist Victor Hugo. When he was describing one of his characters in one of his novels, when he's trying to tell us that this person really stands in awe of God, he says this. He says he didn't study God. He was dazzled by him. And that's what the Psalm 2 would want us to do. He want you and I to be dazzled by our King. Last week I asked the question, Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to have the kind of a life that will be the envy of the entire created universe? Psalm 1 said the answer to that is to be hungry for God. Psalm 2 follows in its heels and says, and be dazzled by him, standing off him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these two psalms that prepare us for the rest of the prayer book that is to come. Thank you for these two psalms that stand as a doorway that invite us to be hungry for you, to be in awe with you, to be dazzled by your magnitude, for you are the mighty king. And Father, we don't know that. We don't understand. A lot of of times our worship and our reading of scripture is so fuzzy and so warm and so cuddly that Father I confess that I get caught up in the malaise of this sugary emotional things that that give me a little high but then they leave me without any substance and and I come to Psalms and Lord they kick me in the head they wake me up to the grand reality that you are the king that the world is not a warm, fuzzy, friendly place. But it's a battleground where eternal battle rages right now. So is it about me? Yes, in some sense, it is your rescue operation to draw men and women like me from the world. 
But ultimately, is it about me? No, it's not. Because you are the one who stands at the center. You are the king. And our knees are bent before you. So Lord, tonight we invite you to be the king of our hearts. May the knees of our hearts bend before you. And may we acknowledge you as the one who truly reigns. May we be dazzled by you.